early believers, just to set the context, they're in Jerusalem. The church is beginning to grow, but it's experiencing pain and suffering as the church of God is growing in a world that is filled with unrighteousness. And so as the people of God strive to live out holiness, they're facing conflicts and difficulties in this situation. And so we find the early church pray these great words in Acts chapter 4, verse 29. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. See, it's interesting, we've, we've talked about this passage before, the, the believers in the early church didn't pray, Lord, uh, would you just make everything so much easier for us? <laughs> they didn't say, Lord, would you, would you destroy those who are against us? They prayed, Lord, would you look upon those threats? Would you hear and see what, what is threatened against us? But would you give us boldness to proclaim your word? And their prayer is answered. The early church becomes very emboldened to proclaim the word of God, and they impacted the first century world deeply. The early believers obeyed God personally, the commands he had given to them, and they went out and they proclaimed God's words to others. No matter what opposition they faced, they endured hardships and suffering that came from people who hated the truth because their hearts were still held captive by sin. They were still living in the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of light was their enemy. This prayer, as I said, is a prayer that I think has been offered many times, not just in Acts 4, but all throughout that first century era, and then ever since then by believers who want to do the same thing, be part of the same work that God is doing all around the world. So this prayer is often a prayer that I will pray. I pray this prayer in face of the difficulties and challenges that we face presently. I pray this prayer in light of the persecutions that I think are coming inevitably as I look towards the future and what my lifetime of ministry will likely look like. My request is the same as these early believers. Lord, grant me boldness to speak your word. No matter the cost, no matter the suffering that may come, no matter the hardship I would face, Lord, would you grant me boldness to be faithful and to endure it for your glory. I pray that prayer, like so many others who have prayed that prayer, because this prayer, when it was offered by the saints in Acts chapter 4, was answered by God, but it wasn't just answered one time. This, this prayer, this request for boldness and endurance wasn't just confined to the first century. This prayer has been prayed time and time again in every generation, every age, and God has repeatedly answered this prayer and raised up men and women to be bold for him and the proclamation of his word. And so we see this lived out in the lives of countless others, names that if you are familiar at all with history, you probably know, and then names that none of us will ever know because their names have been lost to history. But countless other people have become boldened by God to proclaim his word because they love him, they love his scripture, and the result of that is that in every age, among every people group across all of the globe, we have seen God work in mighty and amazing ways, just as he did in the first century. So, as I said, I, I love church history, and, and I think we can be encouraged by church history as we look back to these things that happened in ages past, because we're part of a story that's been unfolding since the beginning of time, especially since Acts 4 and the expansion of the church that was prayed for there. It's just one great story that you and I are a part of today. And I want us to look back at some of the other key parts, because I think we can learn from them and encourage ourselves as we go forward into the world that we've been called to be ministers in. And one of the key historical figures who's profoundly shaped the church, profoundly shaped history in general, when he came to understand the gospel message, is a man named Martin Luther. 
Now, given that today is October 24th, and next Sunday is October 31st, I thought it's fitting for us to consider how God used Luther in particular, both this week and next, because it is his actions 504 years ago on October 31st, 1517, that were used by God to ignite the flame of the great reformation of the church that we stand as heirs of today. Now, personally, I I don't know about you. I'll just kind of share where I am. I I have mixed feelings about October every year. (laughs) It's not my favorite month of the year on the calendar. I love the fall season. And the end of October is usually a pretty nice time because the coolness starts to set in, as we've experienced here recently. The leaves are starting to change colors. There's some beauty that's seen there. And that time change hasn't happened. So when I walk out of my office at the end of the day, it's not depressingly dark yet. (laughs) But that's coming. (laughs) For some of you, you love October. Some of you, it's just a very simple reason. October is pumpkin-flavored everything, (laughs) which is fine. I prefer apple flavor much more than pumpkin, which is fine. You can enjoy the lesser gift, so I have more of the greater gift, no problem. But despite the good things that come in October, there's a reason I just personally struggle to get excited in the month of October. And it's because of the culture we live in, there's this increasing emphasis, I think, upon horror and gore and immorality that comes from secularized thinking and beliefs, which just run rampant in our world today. Now, to be very clear, I am not trying to bash our kids putting on their princess costumes or their Jedi robes or all the little animal things that we're going to dress all the babies up with, okay? I, I get that. Those are cute. But what bothers me so much is when I, this time of year, look anywhere in our society I see things that really unsettle my soul, right? Just if you, if you open up any streaming service, the shows, the movies that are highlighted on there, right? There's something wrong as we see that. You walk through any store and you look at the decorations that they're putting out. It's unsettling. And there's a constant emphasis in our culture, I think, on fear and lust and greed and indulgence that just runs up at this time of the year. And as I said, my spirit's always unsettled by it. So October's not the best month of the year in my view, but what is a bright spot of redemption for the month of October is the last day of October, October 31st. Don't care at all about Halloween. It's Reformation Day. (laughs) See, the events that took place October 31st, 1517, those things in Wittenberg, Germany are very much worth celebrating today, much more so than pagan ideologies and practices that are embraced uncritically in our society today. Now, I want to be honest. We're going to talk about Luther for the next two weeks, and we can talk about Luther for like the next 12 weeks, (laughs) okay? I really enjoy talking about the life of Martin Luther. I love the details, the stories of his life. He's a fascinating individual. I've read dozens of biographies on Luther. I've watched several documentaries on Luther. Some of them are free this month. If you go search Luther documentaries, you can find all kinds of great information about him in this month. I've listened to countless lectures about Luther, and I've read a lot of Luther's writings firsthand. And here's what I want to be really clear on before I spend any time at all talking about Martin Luther, is I want to be very clear. Martin Luther was a very human person. Understand, as much as we can admire Luther, as much as we can be thankful for what God did through Luther, Luther had a lot of flaws. He was human. He did a lot of things that I would never want to do or defend doing. He even held several important theological positions that I would disagree strongly with. And I am very aware, because I'm, I want to be fair in looking at history, I'm aware of the fact that if I had lived at the time of Luther, holding the convictions I had, Luther would have hated what I believed, particularly around baptism and church governance and things like that, and he probably would have thrown me in prison. <laughs> 
So I know all these things about Luther, and yet despite all of it, I have a deep love and respect for this man because he was used by God in an incredible way. And he has an inspiring boldness about him that I find to be really motivating for those of us who want to learn from him, as I encourage us to do over the next two weeks. So what I'm aiming for here is not for this to be the two Sundays of we're preaching Luther. We're going to talk about the God of Luther But through Luther's story, we can have a great lens into what God has done in ages past, and I think we can appreciate Luther's story in a way that would encourage us and give us a good example for some of the things we face today. God used Luther, gave him an unashamed boldness that really has shaped all of history. We sit here today in in this structure of building, doing the things that we do, in large part directly because of what God did through Martin Luther in the 1500s. So what I want to do over the next two weeks is I want to look at some of the key moments in Luther's life and then some of the key things Luther did and taught that has shaped the world. So to start, I want to give a brief biographical sketch of Brother Martin Luther and the time in the world that he lived in. And the next week on the 31st, since it's to the day of this great event that really sparked the flame of the Reformation, we'll talk about what happened on October 31st in 1517, and then what took place in the years following that. So to give you a a kind of an introduction to Martin Luther, Martin was born in Germany on November 10th, 1483. He was the first child born into his family, and his father, Hans, had very big plans for his family. For Martin, it was, he wanted Martin to go and work a high-paying job, a prestigious job, to kind of move the family up the economic ladder. He was hoping that Martin would become a lawyer, and he would earn enough honor and prestige to even perhaps warrant a family crest. So Hans worked very hard. He was a diligent worker. He was a miner by trade. And so he actually worked in two different mines to try and get enough money to send his firstborn son, Martin, off to to the university in Erfurt for education. And he did. He succeeded in getting Martin there. And Martin turned out to be an excellent scholar, had a great mind for study. And so at age 21, Martin graduates from the University of Erfurt with his Master of Arts degree and immediately enrolls in law school there in Erfurt to go and obtain his doctorate and begin his work as a lawyer. But it was in that same year that he started his doctoral program in law, 1505. Just about one month into his classes, Luther had taken a trip home, and he began to have a series of incredible experiences over the next few years that would change everything when they occurred. In 1505, as Martin's coming home to, returning to Erfurt from his father's home, a sudden storm rises up. There's heavy thunder and lightning, which scares Martin in general, but suddenly lightning strikes very close to where Luther is is, and he fears in that moment he will die in this storm. It's so intense that he fears his life is over. And so as the lightning strikes the ground, he cries out in this moment of terror and desperation, these words, help me, Saint Anna, I will become a monk. Help me, I will become a monk. Now, it seems like an odd response to scream out in terror in the middle of a field, in the middle of a storm, To us, it sounds odd, but to Luther, it made perfect sense. He was the product of the religious system of his day. He was a devout Roman Catholic living at this time in the early 1500s, and he believed in the teachings of that religion. 
In the Roman system, by this point, a, a major departure from biblical Christianity has already taken place, and we can see it illustrated just in this appeal that Martin makes here. When Martin needs help, he's, again, fearful that his life will end. He thinks he will die standing in this field. He needs mercy, he needs protection, but he doesn't believe that he can ask God for those things directly. Luther asks St. Anna to provide mercy and protection for him instead. See, in Roman Catholicism, God was said to be inapproachable by sinners like you and I. Even Jesus, the great Savior who came to save sinners, well, he's also told to us in Scripture to be the righteous judge who hates sin. So Rome says you cannot go directly to God the Father. You cannot go even to Jesus Christ, the Savior, when you need mercy. You must go through a mediator. You need someone else, someone whom God loves more than you, you wretched, miserable sinner. (laughs) They need to pray on your behalf. So Rome taught you needed to, when you needed mercy, when you needed something like this, instead of crying out to God, instead of crying out to Jesus, cry out to a dead saint. Because God surely loved them because they were better than you. See, Rome had redefined what it meant to be a saint. The Bible teaches all of God's people are saints. We're declared to be holy ones of God, saints in his sight the moment we are saved. Rome says, no, 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 not all believers are saints. Only the best of the believers are saints. Those who have done, who've been extra good in their life, who have done some miracles, who have even maybe been martyred for the faith. Those people are more righteous, more loved by God. You, common person, you are not a saint. You are not even really all that loved by God. Some saints were said to have certain ties to vocations. So uh, they were called patron saints. And St. Anna was to be the patron saint of minors. That's the, the occupation that Martin's father, Hans, held, right? And so Martin had grown up knowing if I need something, if I need help, if I want God to hear my prayers, I cannot ask him directly for those things. I must ask St. Anna. And so in his terror, in this field, he cries out to the only person he thinks could possibly help him, St. Anna, and offers a bargain. If you will save my life, I'll go and become a monk. I'll give up the dreams of being a lawyer, of all the money I can make, the prestige, the honor, the family crest that I'm on this course to try and obtain. I'll, I'll leave it all behind. I'll go become a humble monk just to spare my life. This is what Luther's like in 1505. He's like most religious people in that day. He's afraid and he's ashamed of his own sinfulness. He doesn't think he can have direct access to God. He needs a mediator who can stand between him and the Holy One, who can bring his requests to God. And in his terror, in his shame, he calls out to St. Anna. He makes this vow. If his life is spared, he will become a monk. And this moment of terror and this offering of a bargain becomes very impactful in the life of Martin Luther. The storm passes. His life is spared. And he takes very seriously the promise he made in that field. He returns to Erfurt, he goes, he sells his law textbooks, he unenrolls from his classes, and he walks down the road, turns down the next street to the great gate of the monastery there in Erfurt. And the monastic order that Martin has walked up to is a very strict and practicing order. They really believe in what they are going to do. They're not the kind of monks who, yeah, come in and just relax and take a, we are going to work you. We have things that we believe God wants you to do so that you will be more pleasing to him, and we're going to make you do those regularly. So there in 1505, as Luther goes to the gate and asks for mercy, asks to come in and become a monk, he joins the Augustinian monastic order there in Erfurt in 1505. And Martin Luther becomes a very diligent monk. 
Now, Martin struggles as he's a monk, not because he finds the lifestyle difficult, and it is very difficult, very rigorous, but he follows it so, so seriously. He followed all the duties that he was told to do, do all these things that he thought would please God. So he would get up and pray seven times a day at regular intervals, including throughout the night. He would live in very sparse conditions, a room that was about three meters long by three meters wide, had a window, much like a prison would have a window set very high, so you couldn't really enjoy a good view. It just would let in a little bit of air from the top. There was only one small cot in the room with a single wool blanket to sleep with. Remember, Martin lives in Germany. It's very, very cold in the winter. There's no heat provided. There's no decorations allowed. And while Martin is in his own room, he's not allowed to talk at all. He must live in total silence. Martin fasted regularly. Despite being in this time period where food isn't overly abundant, Martin took it a step further and would often just go without eating, so much so that he would later develop a lot of problems in his body because he had starved himself so much. And Martin practiced all the things that he was told would make God more pleased with him, such as practicing a regular confession of his sins to his superiors and then doing the works of penance that they assigned. Martin's struggle as a monk wasn't that he didn't want to do these things. It was that he tried to do these things very, very seriously. He had questions and doubts about his relationship with God, as most people of that day did. But Martin thought, if I do everything that I am told, if I do everything in this monastic life that I have been instructed to do, all of these rituals, God would finally love me. At least that's what I'm told. And yet, Martin still knew in his heart he was a sinner and found no peace with God. Martin still, as a monk, living in the monastery, was filled with shame and fear. What troubled Martin the most was pondering this question and trying to examine his own life to find out if he was living in obedience to the command of Jesus when Jesus said that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And Martin, as he thought this over and over, realized, I am not doing this. So Luther would go, and he would spend hours in confession, digging deep into his inner thoughts, his motivations, the deep desires of his heart, trying to find any hint of sin so that he could confess it to the priest who would listen to him, and then would tell him how to go make up for that sinful thought with an act of penance. And Martin would spend hours in confession, so much so that his superiors who took his confessions got quite tired of Brother Luther coming into the confessional and confessing for hours and hours on end. And they would try to get Luther to, to lighten up a bit, to not think so deeply, to not try to confess everything so exhaustively. But Luther understood he was deeply sinful. And if he had to confess and make up for his sins, he must be about this work constantly. At one point, Trying to comfort Luther, his superiors started to talk to him and asked Martin, but Brother Martin, what of your love for God? Don't you love God? You have a good work. You have a love for God that you can rely upon. And Luther's reply was striking about what he felt of God at that time. Love God, Martin said. Sometimes I hate him. Sometimes Christ seems to me nothing more than an angry judge who comes to me with a sword in his hand. Luther was striving with everything he could do to follow the rules, to do the things that he was told would please God, all these works, to live this holy life as it was defined for him. He was doing all of it with every ounce of strength he had, but he knew, he knew he wasn't doing enough. He was always falling short. 
And no matter what he did in that monastic life, he knew that he deserved wrath and anger instead of love and mercy. What Luther was trying to do, and working much harder than you and I probably would ever consider working at this, is he was trying to earn his salvation by what he did. But at the end of the day, Luther knew enough to know it wasn't enough. But this was Roman, Martin Luther's life in Roman Catholicism. Moving ahead, there's lots we could talk about during this period of Martin's life. But if we jump ahead to the year 1507, we find that the, the priests, his superiors who were above him, were, again, so tired of Martin's deep introspection and hours in the confessional that they thought, perhaps what we need to do is make Martin himself become a priest. This will surely help him feel better. So in 1507, Luther is ordained a Roman Catholic priest. And they thought, perhaps all the things we, we add to a priest's workload will begin to distract Brother Martin. But it did not work. Luther had a hard time even officiating his first mass. He was so overwhelmed in the middle of the ceremony that he froze and could not finish the words to try and give the Eucharist because he knew his own sinfulness and God's holiness. Martin's fear and shame were still at the very core of his being, even once he was ordained as a priest. So seeing that that didn't work, his friend and superior, Johann Staupitz, sent Luther onto the path of becoming a professor Obviously, Luther is a very intelligent man. He demonstrated that in his schoolwork before and then all throughout this deep introspection and things that he'd been doing for these years. He was a man who was drawn to study and deep thought. And so the hope from Staupitz was perhaps if we send Luther to get education and make him a professor to teach others, he'll be so distracted, maybe even answer some of his own questions along the way, but, but maybe this will be the distraction that will keep Luther out of our confessionals and we can do other things with our time. So Luther goes, obediently, though he doesn't want to at first, but he goes, and he begins his studies and eventually earns his doctorate of sacred scripture. And he becomes appointed to be a faculty member, a professor of Bible and theology at the brand new University of Wittenberg, about 1512-1513. Luther begins his professor's career by lecturing on the Psalms and then teaches through the book of Galatians, which begins to have a real impact on him. And he turns from Galatians to the book of Romans, and it's in his study of the book of Romans, during the year 1516, that Martin has what we now refer to as the Tower Experience. He's reading and studying, preparing his lectures, wrestling with the meaning of the text, and he comes upon a verse, two verses, at the beginning of Romans chapter 1 that strike him amazingly deeply. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, because we'll look at the same text and let it speak to us the way it spoke to Luther all these years ago. Luther had developed quite an anxiety over a phrase that's repeated throughout the scriptures, which is the righteousness of God. Because what Luther understood this phrase to mean was it's the root of what separates him from God. God is righteous. Luther knew he was not. So God's righteousness was like a barrier. It was something God had. It was something Luther didn't have. And it is what really was at the heart of all the lack of of peace that Martin had. No matter how hard Luther would try, and he really did try hard, he knew he himself was not righteous. His works just kept falling short. And so Luther knew he should be ashamed because he failed often. He knew he should fear the wrath of God, for God has wrath against sinners. But in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Luther finds the truth that not only sparked the Reformation flames in the year 1517, but all throughout history from that time, even to this very day, can spark Reformation again. 
Reformation in us personally, reformation in us corporately, reformation around the globe if we would embrace this truth and understand it the way Martin Luther came to understand it all those years ago. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 say this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now Luther, as he's studying, he's preparing to teach others the book of Romans. He understands Paul is the author of the book of Romans. This was a letter that was written to believers by the apostle who lived in Rome. And Paul has told them up front in this letter that his greatest desire is to come to them and preach the gospel to them even though they're already believers. He's writing to an established church. What Luther is wrestling with at the start of his study in the book of Romans is that for Paul, the gospel is the most important message for both unbelievers and believers alike. It's something Paul delights in. It's something Paul wants to rehearse over and over again. It's something he wants to remind believers and call them to respond to again and again. And Paul says he's not ashamed of the message of the gospel, but Luther doesn't understand the gospel that way. See, Luther had been taught that the gospel was simply another command to do more, to try harder, be holy. It was a command that Luther knew he had failed to accomplish time and time again, no matter how hard he tried, no matter what he did. He was ashamed and fearful of the gospel because he knew he was still sinful and didn't really understand it the way Paul seemed to understand it. So Luther began to wrestle with the text in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He later would describe this time, the imagery he uses. He says, I laid hold of the apostle Paul and beat him until I understood the meaning of these verses. He struggled intensely asking the question, what do you mean, Paul? How can you be unashamed of the gospel? And it was through these verses that God opened his eyes to truly understand the gospel as Paul understood the gospel for the very first time. For the first time ever, Luther understood God does not save people because of the works they do. God does not save people because they make bargains with God. He doesn't save people because they go through the right patron saint. God won't save anyone because they've cleaned up their act or they've prayed enough or they've starved themselves enough or done some ritual. There is nothing anyone can do. Luther finally saw salvation comes through faith alone, in Christ alone. It was this verse, Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, that brought Luther to the realization that the righteousness of God was not something to be feared, something to cause shame in him. It was something that he would be gifted when he had faith in Christ. Luther suddenly came to the realization, this understanding, that he did not need to run from God's holiness and righteousness because of his sinfulness. Rather, God's righteousness to judge sin was satisfied by the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. And by having faith in Jesus, the sinner was given Christ's perfect righteousness for himself to live now as a righteous person in the eyes of God despite the failures and mistakes and sins that were taken and put on the cross of Christ. Luther would later come to describe it with that beautiful phrase, the great exchange, 
where he understood that God would take all of our sinfulness, all of our wretchedness, all of our sins, and place them upon Christ and take from Christ's perfect righteousness and place it on us. And in verse 17, this spark was lit in Luther and would go from Luther throughout the entire world as he read these words, the righteous shall live by faith. It was this verse that Luther began to understand what God does when he saves his people through faith in the gospel message, through Jesus and his accomplished work, not obedience to the law, not obedience to rituals, not anything else, is that God begins to work out faith in the actions and lives of his people. The faith becomes very impactful. The gospel message becomes transformative. The gospel that, that Luther began to understand as he read the rest of Paul, as he read the rest of the New Testament, carefully laid aside all the preconceptions of Roman Catholicism and searched the scriptures alone to find out what is this gospel that gives such great boldness to the Apostle Paul. He found the gospel message is that Jesus is God himself who came to save sinners. Jesus is the one who came to earth, who took on flesh, and he himself lived a perfect life. The very thing Luther was striving and failing to do, Jesus had accomplished. Jesus never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He never failed to do the right thing. He was always perfect, and yet Jesus died in the place of sinners for the purpose of, as he said later, the great exchange, to take the sinfulness of his people and to give to them his perfect righteousness. The gospel was salvation. The gospel was the solution to deal with sin. Not on his own, not by his own effort, not by his own work, but by faithfully looking to Christ, by trusting in Jesus, believing he paid the price that Luther himself owed. He came to understand that Jesus died in the place of irreverent, imperfect, rebellious sinners, just like himself, and just like you, and just like me. And when he understood the gospel in this way, suddenly verse 16 made sense, where Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And Luther said, this is the best news anyone could ever receive. The gospel of the finished, completed work of Jesus' perfect life, substitutionary death, resurrection from the dead, it brings salvation to all who believe, who have faith, who trust him. Not who work, not who earn, not who become priests, not who become doctors of sacred scripture. All who would trust Faith, Luther began to understand, is at the start of the Christian life. And faith is the fuel for the Christian life. The righteous shall live by faith changed everything for Luther. And should change everything for you and I if we believe this text the way Luther did. Salvation through faith in the gospel means that nobody's too far gone for God. We're not too bad to be saved because it's not based on our works. You don't have to clean yourself up because God's not going to look at what you have done to determine if you, he will save you or not. He knows how messed up and broken and wicked and sinful you are. That's why Jesus died. But likewise, when Luther understood that the gospel was the fuel for the Christian life, he understood that the gospel removes the crushing weight of performance, trying to live by the law, being good enough, being perfect, doing the right things. Luther came to realize that his responsibility as one who is saved by God was to repent, not do penance or obtain indulgences. And that's what we'll talk about next week as he really fleshed that out in the 95 Theses and then moving forward from there. 
He understood repentance is what God wants. Repentance, meaning going to God personally, admitting our sins, seeing our weaknesses, turning from them, and believing that God will forgive them. He said this, this is the daily work of the Christian. It's the hallmark of the true Christian life. Living by faith frees us, Luther became, came to understand, frees us to deal with our sins honestly and deal with them effectively. If we're gospel people, if we're saved by the gospel, then we're free to admit our needs, to confess our sins, to turn from the darkness and deception that holds us so captive so easily and live instead in the light and truth. We can find forgiveness when we turn to the only true righteous one who exchanges his perfect righteousness for our sinfulness when we have faith alone in him. The gospel calls us to true true repentance and then produces real life change in us. No matter how hard Luther worked, he still knew what was true of his heart, that he was sinful, that he was undeserving. And yet, when Luther began to believe the gospel, he found his life actually changed in powerful and meaningful ways. The insight that was given to Luther by God was really the start of something incredible. From 1516 to 1517, Luther continued to grow in his understanding and his conviction about what the gospel really was and what it meant to be saved by faith, not by ritual, not by performance. And it began to reshape everything for Luther, how he should live the Christian life. And what it made Luther become was a person who was unashamedly bold as he began to follow God instead of a blind, distorted religious system that held massive amounts of power in his day. Luther became bold to defy them in order to follow God. And that will lead to the very famous actions that took place on October 31st, which we'll talk about next week. But it was in Romans 1, 16, where Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, that Luther's heart was so moved, he wanted himself personally to be able to say that truly, that he himself was not ashamed of the gospel. And when he finally grasped the meaning of Romans 1, 17, it became true for Luther too. He was no longer ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, as you look at the New Testament, you'll find that this phrase of being not ashamed is actually repeated several times throughout the New Testament letters. The authors will use it to speak of how they themselves are not ashamed. They will encourage other believers to not be ashamed. And it's in the book of Hebrews that we're given the grounding for all of it. Luther himself learned this as he moved from Romans to Hebrews and tried to examine what was being taught in the whole of Scripture. In the book of Hebrews, we're found that the reason you and I should not be ashamed is because Jesus Christ himself is not ashamed to be our God, to call us his people. And in fact, the book of Hebrews wonderfully tells us he was even not ashamed to deal with our sin by dying on the cross in our place. So the Christian, to live unashamed... And boldly is one who no longer tries to hide our sin, no longer tries to pretend we don't have sin or refuses to admit that we are sinners. The the bold Christian, the unashamed Christian, is one who's not worried that things will be discovered about us. The bold, unashamed Christian is the one who comes before the unashamed God and confesses our sins and declares that we know we are only saved by him, by his righteousness, by our faith in him. The true Christian is one who becomes unashamedly bold of going to Jesus to find the forgiveness that we desperately need. 
if we will admit our own faults and sins, if we will become honest people, walking in the light of God with God, it will bring challenges. It will bring uncomfortable moments. It's hard to do the work. But to live in faith, to live by faith, means to trust God with everything and to obediently do what he tells us to do. It means to live boldly, believing and proclaiming his word. What we'll see next week in Luther's life is how understanding the gospel and how becoming unashamed of his sin and beginning to confess his sin openly and freely changed everything for Luther. And I think that those great things can be awesome encouragements for us to live boldly, to endure, to have strength for the the battles that we will face. But it has to start with, with a true experience with God and with forgiveness the way Luther found it. Luther worked for years, years, trying to make up for his sins and failing over and over again. Luther worked hard to, be, to look good on the outside. Anyone who looked at Brother Luther would have saw the perfect monk. And yet Luther knew there was more. He knew his heart had to be dealt with. And so this text showed the way to Luther and shows the way to us. You and I, if we want to live lives pleasing to God, if we want to become bold, if we want to become transformed and changed, have to do what Luther did, which is humbly go before God, confess our sins, confess our needs, and ask him for the forgiveness and the righteousness that only he can give us. So, Wendy and the team, if you'll come, they're going to lead us in a final song, and I'm going to pray that we would become bold in this moment, unashamed in this place. If you think, ah, I'll be bold and I'll be unashamed later, you won't. If you can't now, in this moment, in this place, come to God with an openness, admitting your sins, asking for forgiveness. If you can't live by faith in here, you won't live by faith out of these walls. And so I'm going to pray that God would create a group a church, his people in this place who would be filled with an unashamed boldness to come before God in faith, confessing our sins, admitting our needs, and finding from him the gift of righteousness that we so desperately need. Father, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that you have been at work all throughout this world, all throughout history, in the lives of Names we know of, names we will never know. You are the God who has never for a moment ceased to be faithful to your word. And in the text of scripture that we have heard today and we've seen impacted Luther so greatly, we know, Lord, that it is by faith you have called us to live. And the life of faith means dealing openly and honestly and realistically with our sin. So, Lord, I pray that, that in this place, we would humble each of us to, to respond to your word in such a way that without fear, without shame, Lord, we would just lay it down to you today and ask for your forgiveness, ask for your righteousness to cover us. Would you cause us to respond? Would you bless us with the gift of being able to respond to you and to your word today? We believe you are at work. We trust you for great things. It's in your name that we pray and we respond this morning. Amen.